From News Talk 580-1059 KMJ, this is the Maddie Report, Valley Views Edition. Now here's your host, Mark Kepler. California state prisons house nearly 130,000 inmates, and each year tens of thousands of offenders are released back into the community after serving their sentences. While in prison, offenders often participate in various rehabilitation programs to improve the chances they'll lead a productive, crime-free life upon release. The thought is that, by addressing the underlying factors that led to the criminal activity, it's less likely that they'll re-offend. But do these programs actually work? We'll ask the author of a report, Jonathan Peterson, from the nonpartisan California Legislative Analyst Office. We'll also hear from California State University Fresno criminology professor Emma Hughes, Jennifer Leahy, the director of Fresno State's Project Rebound, and one of its graduates, Arnold Trevino. Reducing recidivism. Do prisoner rehabilitation programs actually work? Additional funding for the Maddie Report made possible by a grant from The Wonderful Company, harvesting health and happiness around the world. Chevron's Colinga Oil Field and Fresno County have been doing side-by-side for over 100 years. Learn more at doers.com. From the California Channel at the State Capitol and the Maddie Institute, it's the Maddie Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler. Welcome. The primary goal of prison rehabilitation programs is to reduce the level of recidivism. The question is, do they work? Our guest is Jonathan Peterson with the Nonpartisan Legislative Analyst Office, who recently authored a report that attempts to answer that question. Welcome to the Maddie Report. Thank you for having me, Mark. So first, let's define recidivism. I know there's different kinds of definitions. How do you measure recidivism? You're right, Mark. There are different ways someone can measure recidivism. What recidivism tries to measure is how many offenders, after they're released from jail or prison, end up committing additional crimes. For example, the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation measures recidivism as the number of offenders who, within three years of their release, are convicted of another crime. Why three years? Just just to pick three years? Well, a lot of the recidivism that occurs will happen within that first year, but it seems like looking over time, that's the amount of time it takes before most inmates, if they're going to recidivate, do end up Yeah, they're trying to capture, you know, that period of time. It seems like it would be enough time. So the goal of rehabilitation programs is to reduce recidivism, all right? Mm -hmm. And according to your report, uh, researchers have identified eight significant, what's called criminal risk behaviors, Mm -hmm. things that are likely to result in reoffending. What are they, and can you give us an example of each and and how they're addressed? Sure. So some of these eight factors include antisocial behavior, so whether someone associates themselves with other people, um, antisocial personality would be another one. So that would be someone who's aggressive and that kind of thing? Yeah, and when when they're put in situations where they could end up getting into criminal activity, they're not able to manage the situation and avoid that problem. Okay. You would also find relationships with other people involved in criminal activity being one of these mm-hmm. factors. There could also be attitudes and beliefs that someone has where they're thinking about criminal activity. They don't, having poor relationships with family members would also be one. Right. Low involvement with school or work uh, is another one of the factors. There could also be someone who doesn't have a lot of non-criminal activity hobbies. Uh, and also substance use problems. It's, uh, what is it, idle, idle hands or devil's workshop? Yeah. And, you know, the importance of family, the importance of work, these things that are stable in society prove out true in, in research. Um, mm-hmm. So let's talk about some of the different kinds of rehabilitation programs yeah. uh, to kind of uh, address some of these issues. 
So there's really seven major categories of state-funded rehabilitation programs. Okay. Some of the larger ones include academic education programs, which could be a GED program or, say, college education program. There's also career technical education or job skills programs. You can imagine a welding certificate program being an example. And there's a, there's a big demand for those kinds of uh, career technical education folks when they get released, I would assume. Correct, yeah. We talked about the, one of the criminal risk factors being employment right. and whether someone has a sustained work involvement. Right. And so certainly if they have one of these programs and a certificate that will increase the likelihood that they could get a job upon release, uh, could help them out quite a bit. Great. You'd also find substance use disorder treatment programs and cognitive behavioral therapy, which you can think of as programs like anger management to try and address some of those behavioral issues and learn how to um, improve behavior. Right, when you're upset, don't punch someone in the nose. Calm down and and work your way through it. Yeah, and there are also some arts programs and volunteer programs, so that kind of rounds out the picture. Okay. Um, So, you know, you say in your report that successful rehabilitation program has not only reduced crime, but they have other budgetary implications. Um, Mm -hmm. What are some of those direct and indirect fiscal benefits of rehabilitation programs? So some of the direct benefits, the the fiscal benefits that we can observe that in terms of state and local government's budgets include reduced incarceration costs. So if someone doesn't come back, the state or local governments don't have to pay to continue to incarcerate. And and, and again, I'm... I can't remember the number, but I would say it's, it's north of $50,000 a year to incarcerate someone. Yeah, the average cost in a California state prison, so this isn't the county jails, right. is about $75,000 yeah, so, so okay, it's person. well north of $50,000. Yeah, now we know, I would note that if we didn't incarcerate that person, the state wouldn't get a $75,000 check because they have to keep the lights on in the prisons, the right. staff would still be there. But it is, it is a lot more expensive, expensive. To, co- to house someone in a facility rather than just provide them with a rehabilitation It's kind of program. being proactive versus reactive. We can lock them up or we can try to make sure they don't take that path or don't return to that path after they're right. released. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so we are talking about the direct implications. Yeah. What are some of the indirect fiscal benefits? So you can think of, I think a great example is someone who participated in a, an employment program. If they're able to get a job and keep that job, not only are they not getting involved in criminal activity, not creating crime victims, but they're also potentially um, not using as much in terms of other government uh, assistance programs. So you might see reduced costs for some of those uh, benefit programs being an indirect benefit of prison, of rehabilitation programs. So they're giving back to society. Mm-hmm. You know, also in your report, um, we've only about 30 seconds left in this segment, but I want to talk about some of the other benefits you identified in the report. You want to talk about some of those? Managing inmate yeah. population, so for example? If for prison rehabilitation programs, you could imagine that having an easier to manage prison population could also benefit the state in terms of its costs. If because it's more cost, costly to put them in, in these high-risk situations. Correct. Or, and also giving inmates uh, opportunities to just increase their educational attainment could also be beneficial, not necessarily from a fiscal standpoint, but all just in, in terms of increasing the overall well-being of the inmate population. Yeah. Okay. Well, up next, we're going to take a closer look at how inmate needs are assessed and addressed. That conversation in a moment. This is the- Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with Jonathan Peterson, an expert in the prison system with the Nonpartisan Legislative Analyst Office on whether prison rehabilitation programs are, are successful in keeping ex-inmates from committing uh, future crimes after they're released. So it's my understanding that when someone is incarcerated, their rehabilitation needs are assessed. Can you uh, explain that process? Sure. Whenever someone enters the prison system, they first go to a reception center. I, I like that. A reception center. Yeah. and I'm not sure the inmates view it that way, but... <laughs> yes, and at these reception centers, they get their various needs assessed. So mm-hmm. if they have particular medical needs, healthcare needs, and 
rehabilitation needs. So they get two assessments. The first is, to, is called the CSRA, and it's to identify their risk of recidivating. So each inmate, based on various factors, including their criminal background, gets categorized as low risk, moderate risk, or high risk. Okay. Inmates who are higher risk, meaning moderate or high, get priority for rehabilitation programs. And I was looking at your numbers. I think the, the total of, of high-risk and moderate-risk inmates is, uh, what's the percentage in that? that? That's the majority, isn't it? Yes, yeah, it's a little bit, of, it's around half, so yeah. just right about half. Okay, mm -hmm. um, and then the second thing they do, they have something called COMPASS, yeah. the Correctional Offender Management Profiling for Alternative Sanctions. Exactly. Right. What it's a mouthful. Quite a mouthful. Compass. So what this really does, you can think of it as having someone actually sit down with the inmate and interview them and talk about, okay, what kinds of, what is your background? How did you get involved in the activities you've been involved in? And what kind of programs do you have a need for? Which of those risk factors we discussed earlier uh, are you demonstrating? Yeah, I was recently at, at a state prison actually giving a talk and I was talking to some of the, the fellows there, uh, really a great group of guys when you sit down and talk to them, but some of their backgrounds, I mean, they're really starting off on on the wrong foot in life. They just, you know, their their parents were, were alcoholics, had substance abuse problems, or they were beaten by their parents, and you know, they they got in the wrong, they got in the gang life, and went off in the wrong direction. And they're trying to change now. And some of these mm -hmm. rehabilitation programs are pretty important. Yeah. So. What are some of the uh, most common needs that are identified in these programs? There are five that I think stand out more than any others, and they include substance uh, use problems, anger management issues, uh, need for programs that change their criminal thinking, their behavior patterns, employment services programs, which could be one of these job training, mm -hmm. career technical education programs, and also programs that target uh, having supportive family relationships. Yeah, all very important. So, so you've got a state correctional system. They don't randomly lock up inmates and, and throw away the key. They're, they're actually mm -hmm. assigning inmates to appropriate rehabilitation programs. So how do they then decide, okay, there's a need, now I'm going to assign you to a program. How does yeah. that work? Once, you, once the, the individual is transferred from the reception center to the prison where they're going to be housed, they sit down with a correctional counselor and they talk through here are the results of these assessments. What kind of programs are you most interested in being a part of? Then that conversation transfers over to this committee with that counselor and other rehabilitation program staff, and they determine which programs to assign that inmate to. But even the precursor to that is when they come into the reception, they're actually sent to institutions that deal with their particular needs. Correct? Yeah, so depending an on the environment and both from a physical health standpoint, rehabilitation program standpoint, what security level they need to be housed right. at. Right, right. So there's, there's a lot more thought going into it than simply you're going there. They, Absolutely. They, okay. Mm -hmm. um, so only about 3% of the state prison budget uh, is spent on rehabilitation programs. Uh, sounds like a small figure. It's actually $315 million. Academic and career uh, technical education receive about two-thirds of that amount, so about $200 million. Are there enough rehab programs to address the needs of the prison mm -hmm. population? So the way the department's budget is, they get a certain amount of funding to provide rehabilitation program slots. Right now, they, could, they can operate about 114,000 slots annually across the different programs we talked about. And these slots are basically how many inmates can we have in programs and complete them or participate for that year. Now, it's not the same to think of these 114,000 slots as the number of inmates that can be served because sometimes programs, um, while they might be full and where they might have wait lists, they, not all inmates are actually attending programs and there might be some spots available that the institution hasn't been able to place an inmate in yet. Mm -hmm. So while there are those slots and they provide a certain amount of 
programming to offenders, it's really difficult to assess whether the number of spaces is how many the state needs. We really don't have the, infor the performance measures in place to give us that level of detail. Well, let me ask you this. When you noted earlier in your report that the most frequently identified rehabilitation needs mm -hmm. are for substance abuse, anger management, and critical thinking. Mm -hmm. But when you look at the report, it shows that those programs receive about less than a quarter Mm -hmm. uh, of all rehabilitation spending. So wh why the disconnect? Yeah, part of the reason for that difference in particular between the substance use disorder treatment programs, the cognitive behavioral therapy, and some of the other programs is that those programs are operated through contracts with various uh, pro rehabilitation program providers, as opposed to the academic education and career technical education, which are operated with state civil service staff. So because the okay. state isn't paying for the complete cost of those employees, they tend to be lower per, uh, re per uh, inmate participant than those academic Oh, okay. Education programs. Okay, that's a good explanation. Well, next we're going to look at the current state uh, of rehabilitation programs and where they might fall a little short. That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with Jonathan Peterson, an expert on the prison system with the Nonpartisan Legislative Analyst Office, about whether pre prison rehabilitation programs help keep uh, ex inmates from reoffending after release. Um, so there are some key principles that determine really whether rehabilitation programs work, reduce mm -hmm. recidivism. One of those is whether or not they're based, uh, they're evidence-based. Mm -hmm. um, what exactly do you mean by that? Yeah, an evidence-based program has two components. First, it's research-based, meaning elsewhere a rigorous evaluation has been done showing the program can reduce recidivism. The second component is that it's implemented with fidelity. And what that means is that the, the program not only is based on some sort of research, but it's actually operating as that research-based program laid the program out. Right, so you can't have a program that says, oh, we're going to copy this program, kind of, mm -hmm. in title, but not really follow the A, B, C, and D of the program, because then you're just not comparing apples to apples. Correct, yeah. Okay, titles are not determinative. It's the substance of the programs mm -hmm. that have to be the same. And, and you, I think, had in your report um, a chart on uh, the Washington State savings from various rehabilitation yeah. programs. and. Would that translate directly to California? It wouldn't be a little different, would it? Not perfect. Yeah, so for example, they looked at their career technical education programs mm -hmm. and said, per participant, it generates about $4,300 in net savings. Given that California operates similar programs, it stands to reason that our programs may also generate some net benefits. But the cost of operating programs may be different. The prison population the prison may be population different. as well. Yeah. So there's some mm -hmm. other variables that have, you can't just automatically assume it's going to be directly... Yeah. Applicable. Okay. Um, a second key element in successful rehabilitation programs, according to your report, is that they're evaluated for cost effectiveness. Can you explain? Yeah. If the programs are evidence based, it increases the likelihood that they reduce recidivism, but it's still important to actually go in and evaluate whether your programs, as they're being operated, in fact do reduce recidivism. As we talked about, a program that was found effective in another state may not prove to be as effective as the program that is operating in California because the inmate population is different, the cost of providing it may also be different. Right, so you can't just make an assumption it's going to automatically translate from, say, state of Washington to state of California. And it's important to look at whether those whether the benefits you get actually justify the costs of continuing to operate that program over time. You would think that that's an automatic, right? You think that you can do a cost-benefit analysis, you wouldn't just automatically assume, but apparently some people do. So finally, uh, effective programs, you say, focus on what's called highest risk and highest need yeah. inmates. Can you explain that situation? Yeah, the research shows that programs that target the higher risk 
inmates in terms of their risk of recidivating, who also have the greatest level of rehabilitative needs, uh, if you target those inmates, you can generate the greatest reduction in recidivism. And for example, Ohio looked at their rehabilitation programs and found that they were able to reduce recidivism for higher risk inmates by 8% if they participated in a program for over a year. The lower risk inmates, if they participated in that same program for over a year, they ended up having a seven percentage point higher recidivism. I, I saw rate. that in your report and I'm like, and scratch my head thinking, how in the world does that happen? Mm -hmm. Lower risk actually do worse when they went through that program. Yeah, and so I think what the main takeaway there is that by providing the correct programs to inmates based on their need could allow the greatest number of inmates to avoid future criminal activity, reduce the number of crime victims that are created, and generate the greatest impact that these programs have, given you have limited funding available. Right, so you gotta focus on the right people and then provide them the right programs, but it has to be focused, kind of mm -hmm. pinpointed. Um, you know, in your report, you said that uh, the state-funded programs have a few shortcomings in this regard. What did you yeah. find? Yeah, so first we found that the rehabilitation programs don't always follow the key principles that we just talked about. They aren't always evidence-based. Uh, there hasn't been a lot of cost-effectiveness evaluation of CDCRs rehabilitation programs, and that they're not always targeting these higher, higher risk and higher need offenders. So let me go through some of those. One of the things you talk about is they're not evidence-based, and one thing you point out is the California Arts and Corrections Program. What's going on there? So it's a program that provides, uh, brings in instructors from, the out, from outside of the prisons and has them provide arts instruction, uh, which from a recidivism reduction standpoint, there hasn't been an evaluation that we've seen that details how that program actually reduces recidivism. Doesn't mean it's not a program right. worth doing, but from just a recidivism reduction priority, it doesn't, it hasn't, that connection hasn't been made I to just this point. Mm -hmm. just don't know. Another way we're talking about when you talk about limited evaluation of cost effectiveness, you're looking at um, the CTE courses, career technical education courses, yeah. and whether they help. I mean, what'd you find there? So back in 2010, the CDCR worked with Chico State University to do an evaluation of their programs and did find that CTE programs resulted in a re reduction in recidivism. The key uh, difference, though, is they weren't able to then consider how much they cost to operate those programs. So we know they were effective. We just don't know whether they were cost effective. Okay, and the, and the last thing you were talking about was um, they aren't targeted to high risk, high need. What was happening there in California? There, I think there are just some programs where they haven't. They allow inmates of all risk levels, low risk, moderate risk, and high risk, into programs, and that they haven't been targeted to make sure that high risk inmates are in those programs first. Which are the ones where it actually works and is most effective? Mm -hmm. Okay. So up next, we're going to talk about some of the recommendations the LAO has to reduce, help reduce recidivism. That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with Jonathan Peterson, an expert in the prison system with the nonpartisan LAO Legislative Analyst Office, about some of the California prison rehabilitation programs and whether or not they work in terms of reducing recidivism. Now, you've come up with some recommendations. Mm -hmm. uh, the first one you said was this, the, the prison system should be required to show that these programs are evidence-based. Mm -hmm. How do they go about doing that? Yeah, so as we discussed previously, being evidence-based re requires that programs are research-based and, and implemented with fidelity. And so our recommendation is twofold. First, we recommend that the legislature direct CDCR to, to present a report showing the research that each of its programs is based off of. 
and when the legislature determines which programs to provide ongoing funding for, that they only provide funding for research-based yeah, programs. Yeah, the only thing I noticed in your report, you also said eliminate funding for those where they can't show. You're going to give them some time yeah. to show you that, but if they can't show you empirically these things are, are, are working, then no. Yeah, and we, we do in our report address corrective action plans to give them that time that you mentioned. Yeah. And then second, we uh, do recommend that these programs are regularly evaluated to ensure that they are implemented with fidelity, to make sure that they not only are operating effectively, but continue to do so on an ongoing basis. And we think that the combination of these recommendations will allow CDCR to maximize the potential reduction in recidivism. Right, right which makes sense. So the second thing you argue is, quote, it's critical to measure the actual effect programs have on recidivism. I mean, unquote. In other words, you want to measure the actual cost effectiveness of rehab programs. How do you suggest the state go about doing that? Yeah, so it's right now, given the lack of cost-effectiveness evaluations, it's really difficult, if not impossible, for the legislature to assess whether it's making the most use out of its limited rehabilitation program resources. So what we're, what we're recommending to the legislature is that they work with independent researchers to decide how to do this in the most effective way to go out and look at what are, how effective are how cost-effective are rehabilitation programs as CDCR is currently operating? What I thought interesting in your report was you were taking a look at a longitudinal study, another mm -hmm. period over time, which, you know, as a college professor, I feel the same way about, are we doing an effective job teaching our students? Don't ask them how well they like the class, but follow mm -hmm. them three, five, ten years out. Are they successful in their careers? And you're kind of thinking the same way with, with these programs. You're exactly right. Yeah, it would be important to look at least a few years out to see whether or not it took a while for the recidivism reductions to happen or whether they were immediate. Yeah. So the third thing you say you want the state to do is you want them to more effectively target programs to high-risk and high-need mm -hmm. inmates. How do they go about doing that? Yeah, as we talked about, the, targeting those inmates can help maximize the potential recidivism reduction. And first, we recommend a committee comprised of rehabilitation program staff, researchers, and stakeholders in these programs to make sure CDCR is using the right tools to identify who, which are the inmates that are the highest risk to recidivate. Second, we recommend that the legislature directs CDCR to prioritize the enrollment of its highest risk and, and highest need offenders to make sure that those inmates, the greatest number of those inmates possible, are released having all of their rehabilitative needs met to help reduce right. the level of recidivism. So the last thing you want to see is high, high risk, high need folks getting released from prison. You know they have this need, but they don't get the the, the training, whatever they need, uh, the help they need, mm -hmm. and they're right back in, in, engaging in crime again. Um, so let me go talk about the fourth thing you said. There are several recommendations. Mm -hmm. The fourth one you had is you want to see some improvement in the efficient use of existing rehabilitation resources. Mm -hmm. What exactly are you recommending there? Yeah, so to ensure that the legislature and CDCR have the information necessary to determine whether it's making the most use out of its existing funding, we first recommend that the legislature have CDCR conduct an assessment of its existing programs to determine what resources would be needed to meet all of the needs of its offenders and particularly those highest risk and highest need offenders mm -hmm. to determine where we are compared to that to that amount of funding. And additionally, we recommend that the legislature consider whether or not to incorporate uh, attendance into how it funds rehabilitation. I, I saw that recommendation that was really interesting. It's mm -hmm. very much like schools, right? Schools are given money based on average daily attendance yeah. and you're thinking the same thing in, in prison training programs. Right, and it might be attendance, it might also include other performance measures. The goal is to give CDCR an incentive to make sure that inmates get to these programs as frequently as they're offered. To make sure that if they're happening, 
that's inmates are able to take advantage. It's just of. really interesting because because I have a, I have a child in, in school and yes, there's there's an implicit pressure to show up at school uh, mm -hmm. to not cut classes because they're counting on that average daily attendance to get their funding. That's right. Now, finally, you recommend improved performance measures to enable regular oversight. Mm -hmm. now, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so robust performance metrics are really needed to enable regular oversight over these rehabilitation programs. How effectively is the funding being used? Uh, what to what extent is legislative or department action needed to improve them? And at a minimum, we th we CDCR should provide reliable information on things like the percentage of inmates in a given year who are enrolled in programs consistent with their needs, and the percentage of inmates that are released having their needs met. Now that's that's a, a bunch of very good recommendations that the legislature and, and CDCR will probably be looking at. I we hope. I want to thank our guest uh, Jonathan Peterson from the California's Legislative Analyst Office for joining us. If you want to stay up with state and local politics, you can can follow us on Facebook and Twitter or log on to the Maddie Institute website to follow us uh, on the Maddie Daily. Up next, we'll hear about a Valley program that has had some success in reducing recidivism. Could it be a model for the state? We'll ask California State University Fresno criminology professor Emma Hughes, Jennifer Leahy, the director of Fresno State's Project Rebound, and one of its graduates, Arnold Trevino. You're listening to the Matty Report, Valley Views Edition on KMJ. What about local attempts to reduce recidivism? Are they working? Our guests are people who are involved with a program at California State University Fresno to help reduce recidivism and help ex-inmates turn their lives around to become contributing members of society. Our guests are California State University Fresno criminology professor Emma Hughes, Jennifer Leahy, the director of Fresno State's Rebound Project Rebound, and one of its graduates, Arnold Trevino. Welcome to the Matt Report Valley Views Edition. Thank, Thank you. you. So, Emma, thanks let me. Uh, yeah, th thanks for thanks for being here. So, P Professor Hughes, let me start with you first. Let's talk a little bit about recidivism. Uh, you've been involved with um, programs to help ex-inmates. Uh, what does your research show? Are the kind of the best approaches to reduce recidivism? Well, really, across the board, there are certain types of programs that stand out as being effective. Uh, the cognitive behavioral therapy programs are really popular. Those are ones that try and change thinking patterns in order to change behavioral outcomes. So th those are effective. Those reduce reoffending. But those programs um, really work on addressing deficits, but don't necessarily focus on building strengths and new skills and new qualifications. So I'm very much supportive of the education programs. The research consistently shows that education reduces reoffending. In fact, one study by Rand that came out in 2013 shows that those people who take part in education in prison have 43% lower odds of going back to prison after release. And, and when you say education, do you mean um, what? Getting your high school degree, getting a college degree, or how broad is that defined? How broadly is that defined? So the RAM study looks quite broadly at all kinds of levels of education. So mm -hmm. that's basic education, such as literacy and numeracy. It's getting a GED and also college education. But those studies that break down the different types of education show that it's the highest levels of education, the college education, that is the most effective at reducing reoffending. You know, it's interesting because if you look at the where the state puts its dollars in rehabilitation, they, they follow that logic. About 63% of the rehabilitation dollars go toward, go toward education. Um, so, uh, Director, I guess I'll call you Jennifer, if that's all right. Uh, Jennifer Lee? Yes, Okay, Jennifer, the director of Fresno State's Project Rebound, what are your thoughts about that? I mean, do you see on the ground, you're working with folks, with ex-inmates, 
does education really make a difference? It absolutely makes a difference. Um, so that change begins inside uh, as the individual student starts to redefine how they see themselves. Um, so uh, moving from one subcultural uh, lifestyle that includes a certain type of thinking and a certain type of behavior and into a very pro-social lifestyle is a process and it's a change and that change begins inside as people start to take educational courses, uh, whether it's GED and college in particular, and they start to see opportunities in their communities and in their future uh, that they didn't have before uh, for, em for, uh, for employment and for um, uh, acceptance and success in their communities. Um, I, we also see it after they come home um, in, in a very significant way as well. Can, can you give me kind of a, or, or list our audience kind of an idea of the kind of backgrounds of the you know typical background that you typically see of, of folks that end up offending and then get out and are trying to change their life? Um, socioeconomic, uh, do you see certain kind of characteristics with folks? Um, sure. Uh, I will say that uh, the, my population uh, in, in the cohort here at Fresno State and in this uh, valley, because we do actually work with students throughout the San Joaquin Valley, um, not just in Fresno. Um, and their backgrounds are generally from low socioeconomic status. They, uh, most of my students come from impoverished neighborhoods and, um, and backgrounds. Uh, I do have a large um, population of minorities, uh, a, a variety, uh, not just one particular type, but um, we have more males in the program than we have females. Um, uh, but as far as age, I have a, a wide range from um, 19, 18, 19 years old all the way up into 60s. You know, so uh, that's, that's definitely the widest. Yeah, recently I was I was invited to speak uh, at a state prison. Um, frankly, it's the first time I'd ever been to a state prison, and didn't know what to expect. And I was I have to tell you, I was very impressed um, with the inmates that, that that I met. I mean, they're all trying to turn their lives around. They're all trying to you know once they get released, they want to continue with their education and be contributing members of society. But I found them incredibly articulate, um, thoughtful. It just, it seemed like just they took a bad turn, made a, a bad decision early in their lives. A lot of these things happen when they were teenagers and they're trying to, trying to turn their lives around. So I think that's what a lot about what your program, Project Rebound, is all about. So could you give us, Jennifer, give us a kind of an idea of what, where it started and, and what's, what you're trying to do with Project Rebound? Sure. Um, so it started in the late 1960s at San Francisco State. It was founded by uh, Dr. John Irwin, who himself uh, was a former felon and came home and went back to school, got his, his degree, uh, his master's degree, uh, and eventually his Ph.D. from Berkeley. He was hired in the sociology department at San Francisco State, where he taught for his entire career. He was a prolific writer and advocate for those that were incarcerated uh, and education and how that impacted um, changing lives. It had changed his life uh, and transformed him uh, from uh, his, his antisocial pathways into a very pro-social member of, of the community there in San Francisco. And he wanted to proactively help other people do the same thing because he had realized that being provided the resources, the desire, much like you saw yourself, Mark, when you were at BSP, the desire to change was there, uh, the seriousness with which uh, these individuals take their education is evident if, if you spend some time talking to them. 
but once they come home, uh, there are still some very serious logistical uh, um, blockages in their pathways to success. And so what Project Rebound does is address those things. Um, navigating your way through the higher education system is difficult for anybody who has a, a great deal of social capital and social support. Uh, for those individuals that have, uh, and most times of their own volition, destroyed that social capital and social support, they come back into a community with a desire to change and without the resources or the connections to, to make that change possible. And what Project Rebound does primarily is work on a one-on-one -on -one basis with individuals, um, helping connect them to the resources that they need to be successful, helping them with logistical issues like applying uh, yeah, for college, for financial aid, um, cleaning up academic records, uh, cleaning up legal records. There have been a lot of changes in the state of California pertaining to to criminal records, and we have legalized uh, uh, marijuana now, so individuals can go back and get those those charges removed off of their record um, to help remove those barriers to employment um, and success. And so we do a variety of things. Um, it, it would take much longer than half an hour to tell you specifically those things. But as a, uh, as a rule, we, we connect the resource that is generally already established on campus or in the community uh, to the need of the student. So it's more than just you know, a student looking to get a college education. You help them with other kinds of services as well? Well, absolutely. You can't get a college education if you don't know where your next meal is coming from or where you're going to lay your head that night. Uh, if you're still struggling with substance abuse issues, uh, issues or child custody issues, if you have uh, financial trouble and in, in that you've gotten a student loan before and, and now that uh, is in default, you need to get that loan straightened out and get back on a, a correct pathway. Um, but also we provide a, an environment that uh, supports each other. I, uh, this uh, whole program was founded on the concept of each one teach one. So our students take leadership roles in, in, um, in helping other individuals, in mentoring, and in sharing information, and building a pro-social community, uh, an academically-minded an academically pro-social community. So it sounds like it's, it's kind of a comprehensive approach. You're, you're providing this uh, each one, teach one, uh, kind of a social network um, to help them be more successful. So they're in with the right crowd, frankly, people are trying to do the same thing. Um, and you're also, uh, you know, providing this, this array of services and, and how to access them. And that's one of the problems sometimes, just people coming out. It's not simply give someone a, a bus ticket when they got out of prison and good luck. Um, you're, you're providing a kind of a, a, a full opportunity for them to kind of reintegrate into society successfully. Is that the idea? That is correct. So um, I, I, I know that you spoke with the individuals from LAO and, and uh, in looking at their report. Right. Um, they identified eight areas that were significant in contributing to the recidivism rate, and Project Rebound does address several of those specific areas, like substance use and leisure and recreational activities and, and making sure that individuals are involved together in uh, very positive ways that avoids criminal activity and involvement, focusing on school and work-specific issues. Um, we, we help with tutoring um, and, and those types of issues that any student faces. Yeah. Uh, family and marital status, we have connections in the community uh, that help uh, individuals with counseling, um, navigating um, ch um, child custody issues, et cetera, um, avoiding antisocial relationships and, and promoting that mentorship 
um, with individuals that um, Arnold can share more about that specifically and how that, that has manifested for him too. Uh, and changing the way people think. You know, we, we provide an academic course. Uh, um, Dr. Hughes could, could probably speak more to this specifically, our CRIM 136T class, which really looks at specific issues like uh, desistance and transformational programming and, and the research to support those types of things. Um, to change the way individuals think about uh, where they have been and where they are going. So the importance here is that, you know, you're not just willy-nilly creating this program. You're actually looking at kind of the significant criminal risk factors that were articulated, in, like, for example, in the LAO report and saying, okay, we're going to put programs around this to get get these folks on the right path. That's what it sounds like. Absolutely. And, and again, the LAO report uh, pointed out some the, like the three key principles for rehabilitation uh, programs to reduce recidivism. And they suggested that it be evidence-based, right. that it be cost-effective, and that it focus on the highest risk and the highest need individuals. And, uh, and Project Rebound does that. Yeah. Uh, we are evidence-based. Uh, the uh, San Francisco Project Rebound has been in, in operation for 50 years. They have an exceptionally high uh, graduation rate, between 90 and 95% graduation rate and an exceptionally low recidivism rate, which is between 2 and 3% for anybody who's even participated in the program at any point. So uh, definitely evidence-based, uh, cost-effective. We, we use the resources that are already established. Um, we're not reinventing the wheel. We're just connecting people with, with uh, resources that they are unaware of in their own community here on campus and in the community. And we do focus on the highest risk and the highest need in, um, um, individuals, the students, those coming home from prison in particular, uh, are the individuals with the greatest needs yeah, it was and the greatest risk. Problem. It was interesting that you know, the LAO cited this uh, Ohio study that found that higher-risk offenders who remained in these kinds of programs for over a year had 8% lower recidivism rates, uh, but then when they looked at applying these same programs to low-risk inmates, they actually had a 7% higher recidivism rate. So for lots of reasons, for success rates uh, and cost-effectiveness, you need to focus on those high-risk high-risk folks if you really want to make a difference. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, uh, Professor Hughes, uh, let, let me ask you, um, what, are you, what are your thoughts on this? Do you think it's a Project Rebound and, and programs like this are a cost-effective way to deal with this problem? Yes, I mean, I think all the evidence points in that direction. As Jennifer's been explaining, you know, we're, we're giving people a pathway to follow that is going to allow them to adjust back into the community in a really positive way. So if they'd begun education while they were incarcerated, and we've already seen that that is shown to reduce reoffending, then we're giving them a pathway to continue on post-release that can also help them address other aspects of the reentry process. And another thing that we see is that it's having huge impact on the family members of the students involved in Project Rebound. So for instance, some of our students have children who are now thinking about going to college in the future because of what they see their parent doing, because of how their parent is turning their life around. So it's changing families and changing communities in a way that keeps everyone safer and shows what can be achieved, what can be done. And the students in our program really act as role models for other students in the program, for new students coming into it, um, for students who are currently incarcerated, our Project Rebound students, in some occasions return to prisons to talk about their experiences and to show how they have succeeded, how they've turned their life around. So it can begin to give more hope to people who are incarcerated to think, well, if they can do it, 
then maybe I can too. Now, and that's, that's what ultimately keeps us safer. That's really interesting, that the, the spillover effect. You don't think about that sometimes, but the people get into a life of crime. You know, their, their father was a, or was a drug dealer, then you know, they just pick up that lifestyle. But if you break that cycle, uh, then it's not impacting just that individual alone. It's impacting their entire family. Uh, which is which is can be exactly right. Yeah, breaking that cycle is crucial, and we have this year um, funding from the Opportunity Institute to run Project Rebound at Fresno State, and the money we're getting is about the equivalent of running of having one person in prison for one year in California. It costs about seventy-five thousand plus actually to keep someone in prison. So with that kind of money, you can actually offer a lot of services that help many right. people. You, know, you, can, you can send someone to prison or you can send someone to Harvard. It's about the same expense, mm-hmm. um, yeah. which, is a better, which is a better use of, of dollars. Well, up next, we're going to talk to an ex-inmate who graduated from Project Rebound. What does he think of, of the program? Did it reduce uh, his need to go back into – you know, i, I got to cut that. i got to redo that. I just completely screwed that up. Sorry. Can Bruce, can <laughs> just, sorry. Okay. Let, me, let me just – Bruce, let me just do that again, okay? Yeah. Okay, up next, we're going to talk to an ex-inmate who graduated from Project Rebound. What does he think of the program? Did it work for him? That conversation in a moment. This is the Matty Report, Valley Views Edition. You're listening to the Matty Report, Valley Views Edition on KMJ. Welcome back. We've been talking uh, about a Valley program, Project Rebound, to help reoffending uh, individuals re-enter society successfully uh, with two California State University professors, uh, Emma Hughes and Jennifer Leahy, we're now being joined by a graduate of that program, Arnold Trevino. Welcome to the Matter Report, Arnold. Thank you. So can you tell us a little bit about your background? How did you end up in the criminal justice system? Uh, well, briefly, uh, I started at 15, started uh, drinking. And uh, from drinking, it just led me to all the other gateway drugs. And uh, with drinking came fights, and with fights came women, with women came more fights. And uh, so it just escalated. Uh, at 16, I, I got my first knife fight, and I lost that. I got stabbed in the chest. And uh, by the time I was 17, I was introduced to cocaine and heroin. And uh, by the end of my 17th year of living, I had started uh, mixing the two drugs together and, and shooting up uh, speedballs. And uh, so my life wouldn't, uh, nothing would change for the next couple of years following that. I would just, uh, just straight knucklehead uh, living life of the day and, and nothing more. Uh, I finally turned 21, and I tried to go back to school, and uh, uh, so I started working the graveyard shift to pay for my tuition, and uh, well, it was payday, and we got together for a for a uh, party. I called in sick that day, and uh, so I started shooting up early during the day and drinking, and, and uh, as I would have it, I, I picked another fight at a party, and uh, I lost the fight. I got pissed off and I came back an hour later and I stabbed the guy that uh, that I got in a fight with earlier and he ended up dying five minutes later unfortunately. Uh, six months later I was convicted of second degree murder. Uh, I was given a 15 year, year to life sentence for, for the murder and one more for the knife. Uh, out of the uh, 16 years to life sentence I served 25 years. Uh, I paroled in 2011. I gave uh, the system an additional five years on parole. This April will be two years that I've been off parole. Uh, so that's how I got Yeah, you can see a series of bad decisions and ends you up in prison. But what the amazing thing is you've gotten off that path. Uh, you've turned your life around. How did education play a role for you while you were in prison? Uh, so I was in prison up until uh, when I first started the first five years. It was just... Uh, Complete insanity. Nothing had changed in my life. Uh, I was 
why he transferred over from a level four maximum security prison to a level three uh, at dual vocational institution back in 1991. I uh, got involved with the uh, high school independent study program there, which I graduated a year later. Uh, and I continued on. There was a, uh, a college program there, and uh, the professors from San uh, Joaquin Delta College would come in and, and teach. And uh, by 1994, uh, then President uh, Bill Clinton had uh, enacted the, the crime bill, which took away the, uh, the Pell Grants from prisons. And I was fortunate enough to have graduated, and, and I was the last of two students who uh, did get their uh, associate's degree. Uh, before that bill was uh, finally implemented. Uh, from there, you know, it, it just, uh, education allowed me to see different, uh, the, the whole worldview from an academic lens. So you, and it just uh, changed, totally changed my life. So, but, uh, you, so you get out, you get out of, of prison, and I assume you hooked up with Project Rebound, maybe while you were still in prison, um, you made that connection. And how did, what happened with that program for you? How did it work for you? Well, I got into the Fresno State. I transferred over to Fresno State eventually, and uh, I was I set up for the social work program. And they have one year of core classes. The second year, you have to do an internship. And it was during the internship phase that I had my problems, where uh, where uh, I was told that uh, I had to get uh, an internship in order to graduate and get my undergrad degree. Well, during the summer between uh, when the, the field director was looking for internships for all her students. Uh, they couldn't find one for me because I have because of my background. Mm-hmm. And she called me up and she said, you know what, you're probably going to have to find uh, a different major because uh, I can't find anything for you for social work. And uh, two days later, she called me again. She says, hey, guess what? There's a new program starting here on campus called Project Rebound. Are you interested? Uh, all they want is somebody that has a background. And I said, well, you know what, I have that, I have that qualification, you bet. And uh, since then, it's been a blessing. You know, it just, uh, I was a fish literally out of water, and the Project Rebound threw me back in the pool. And I'm talking about a pool. They threw me back in the water, and this water turned out to be an ocean. I have not reached the depths. I have not reached the ends. Uh, I'm just still swimming. And the funny thing about it is uh, I don't know how to swim, but the Project Rebound <laughs> has been keeping me afloat. You bet. No, it's, uh, it's... And I'm, I'm currently where I'm at now. I'm in the master's program because of Project Rebound, and, and, I, and I thank them a lot. Uh, it really kept me going academically, uh, and I'm currently also interning at the Juvenile Justice Campus here at in Fresno, the Juvenile Hall. I work with uh, Focus Forward, and I'm also at Avenal State Prison, uh, working as a volunteer, as a co-facilitator for a pr- uh, program called Inside Garden Program, and I'm still here at the Fresno State Campus uh, at the uh, Project Rebound as a student assistant. Uh, so, so you're working towards your master's degree in social work? Yes, sir. Yeah, and so that, um, that's an amazing story. And it's interesting when, the, when you're talking about the issues you've confronted, all the hurdles. You know, we want people you know, to, ch- to turn their life around, lives around right, after prison, and yet we put all these hurdles in their way. So, well, you, you were convicted of something. We can't, you can't get a job here. You can't get a job there. And it makes it almost impossible to get back on the right path. It sounds like Project Rebound really helped open some doors for you. Oh, you bet. They, they sure have. And, you know, what, what does society want? Do they want the old me or do they want the new me? That's a, that's a great so way to say it. They have taken me uh, the way I came in. You know, I went to prison with one mindset, and, and I paroled with a difference and uh, have a better worldview and, and looking forward to the graduation and, and moving on with my life. You know, it's, it's really interesting uh, just hearing you talk. You know, and I was up talking to the folks at the state prison, inmates at the state prison. I was got to tell you, I was, and I'm just a layperson, um, don't know much about the criminal justice system. 
but I was really impressed uh, with the inmates, how just how smart they were, how articulate they were, how much how driven they were to change their lives, turn them around. And you are a great example of that. Um, so what do you say to people? Though? There are some people out there that say, listen, this person did a really horrible thing. Um, why should we help you? Um, why should we help, you know, convicted felons uh, with a program like this? What would you say to them? Well, uh, who do you want? Do you, do you want the old Arnold? Or do you want the new Arnold? Uh, that just, I, I, normally I answer that question before I even, they even ask. Cause I, I'll share my story with them and, and where I was and, and where I am and where I plan to be. And uh, there's over tens of thousands of people who've been released uh, per year. And, 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 and they're going back into our communities. Uh, and without an education, it's going to send them right back. And it's not sending them back is what we're worried about. What we're worried about is what they do to go back uh, if, if they don't get that uh, chance for an education while they're in, in, incarcerated. Uh, this, this program, and I enjoy going back to the prisons, especially on Saturdays when I do my volunteer work at Avenal State Prison, uh, and, and I show them what can be, change is possible uh, through an education uh, if you give it a chance. If, if you're looking for the change, it's there. It, 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 can, it can be done. You know, Once it's one, it's not always one. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, you can talk about to, to folks about, hey, this is what you should do. But when you have a living, breathing example in front of you, hey, I actually did it. Look at how you know bad my situation is. I actually turned this thing around. Uh, that's pretty compelling, I would think. Let me ask you this, though. Um, could you have done what you're doing without a program like Project Rebound? Absolutely not. As I said, I was a fish out of the water. The, the, uh, I did my first year of my core classes in social work and they could not find an internship for me, I was done with academia. It was done. It was time for me to look for for work or something else. Uh, had it not been for Project Rebound, uh, keeping me afloat, yeah, it, it's uh, Project Rebound is, is definitely a, a worthy cause, a uh, worthy program. Well, you know, uh, Jennifer Leahy, you know, you're the director of, of Fresno State's Project Rebound. You must feel, feel pretty good about hearing this. It's fantastic, it, it, and and Arnold's not the only one. Um, I each of my students have presented uh, with a unique set of, of issues and problems, uh, hurdles, and I, and and like I said, it's difficult to navigate this system when you have all the help in the world uh, and 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 few obstacles in your pathway. But oftentimes, uh, with individuals that have been incarcerated, they are so accustomed to hearing no, um, and you can't do that. Uh, that when they come up against an obstacle, it becomes a brick wall for them instead of a speed bump like it is for most students. Um, and so removing brick walls like we did for Arnold, and, and all we did was provide him an opportunity to do what every other student in his cohort is already doing, is an internship. Um, I did no work for him. He did it all himself. Um, my other students are the same way. Uh, if we can get the door open for them, they will go through with with enthusiasm um, and dedication um, to be successful, to dispel that myth. They, they are on a mission to dispel uh, the myth in society, uh, that idea that uh, once one, always one is not true. That is not true. Well, that is, that, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. I really appreciate you being here. Uh, Jennifer Leahy, the director of Fresno State's Project Rebound, California State University Fresno Criminology, Professor Emma Hughes, uh, graduate of Project Rebound, Arnold Trevino, and Jonathan Peterson earlier on with the California Legislative Analyst Office. Thanks all of you for joining us. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you.
The views and opinions expressed on the Matter Report are those of the individuals participating in the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the California Channel or the Maddie Institute. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the points and opinions expressed on the Matter Report, visit our website at maddieinstitute.org. The Matty Report, Valley Views Edition, is a public affairs partnership between KMJ Radio, Cumulus Media, and the nonpartisan Matty Institute, providing the Valley with valuable insight and analysis on politics and important public policy issues. This is KMJ.